Well, good evening, everyone, and thank you very much for coming to this public uh, lecture organized by the LSE Middle East Center. You probably noticed that I'm not Kirsten Schultz. Uh, she had to, uh, unfortunately, withdraw at short notice. So I'm chairing this seminar instead. My name is Dr. Christian Ulrichs, and I'm a research fellow here at the LSE in the Department of Government, working on the Kuwait Research Program. It's a pleasure to introduce Dr. Kabul Kirsten from King's College who will speak on Muslim cosmopolitanism or heresy, lessons for the aftermath of the 2011 Arab Spring. Uh, I've been asked to point out that we have a hashtag for all you Twitter users. It's LSE Kirsten, K-E-R-S-T-E-N. Uh, Dr. Kirsten will speak for about 30 or 40 minutes, and then we'll have plenty of time for discussion Q&A period afterwards. Uh, he's been a lecturer in the study of Islam and the Muslim world at King's College since 2007. He's an author of Cosmopolitans and Heretics, New Muslim Intellectuals and the Study of Islam, which Columbia University Press have recently nominated for the Asia Society's Bernard Schwartz Book Award, as well as for the AAR Prize for Best First Book in the History of Religion. He's also the author of Critical Muslims, a blog which introduces innovative and creative thinkers from the contemporary Islamic world. Before joining King's College, he was a faculty member of the Center of Graduate International Studies at Payak University in Thailand, where he taught courses of Asian history and religion. And between 2002 and 2005, he was also academic director in Thailand of US-based nonprofit organization facilitating study abroad programs in 13 countries. He spent more than 10 years working in the Middle East as a human resources manager and as a translator of Arabic. He has a PhD in the study of religion from SOAS, is a fellow of the Higher Education Academy in the UK, Royal Asiatic Society of Great Britain and Ireland, and a member of the Chartered Institute of Linguistics. And he also sits on the steering committee of the Society of Contemporary Thought in the Islamic World, at the International Advisory Boards of the Journal of Global and International Studies, and the editorial board of the Sociology of Islam Journal. Dr. Kirsten, please. Thank you. Well, first of all, I'm, I'm very pleased to be here at the LSE. It's always a, a bit of a challenge for a, a non-political scientist um, to, to face audiences here. So I have to start immediately with a, with a sort of a caveat that although my earlier training was indeed in Arabic and Middle Eastern studies and I spent about 10 years in Saudi Arabia, I, I do not consider myself a, a Middle East expert per se. Um, I'm also a political scientist or, or a historian or international relations uh, expert, but the field of the study of religions and, and Islam in particular, that is a sort of my field and that is also what uh, the book that is sort of gives me the setup for this talk and, and from which the, the title is obviously um, taken. Um, the, the concentration of this book is, is well, yeah, two things I think, it, it's a sort of an intellectual history of the contemporary Muslim world and uh, it looks in particular at Muslim contributions to the study of religion as a field of um, academic inquiry. This is not the stuff I'm going to focus on today, but, but I'm happy to talk about it later on if we have time or, or if you have questions about it. So why would you come and listen to a, to a scholar of religion or an Islamicist to, to hear about um, current affairs in uh, the Middle East, let alone why would you read that book? 
well, I hope to convince you that the work that is being done by Islamicists uh, contains at least some elements that can also be of use to, uh, to other disciplines where the research interests are indeed focused on uh, the politics of the Muslim world. And in fact, I believe that underneath or, or behind some of the de developments that have been transpiring during the past year, there are aspects which resonate with uh, what I've written about in, in Cosmopolitans and, and Heretics. Now, in my book, I look at uh, three new Muslim intellectuals. And by this, I mean uh, scholars and thinkers who combine um, an intimate familiarity with the Islamic tradition with an equally solid knowledge of um, Western advances in the humanities and in the social sciences. And, and they apply that to their analysis of religion. I've looked at an Algerian ethnic Berber, Mohammed Arkoun, who spent his career teaching about Islam in France, an Egyptian philosopher called Hassan Hanafi, and an Indonesian scholar of Islam called Nurkholis Majid, who did his advanced studies at the University of Chicago. Hanafi and Arkoun are both graduates of the Sorbonne, I should point that out. Now, aside from being academic scholars of Islam, all three are also engaged Muslim intellectuals who have spoken out on political issues and current affairs in the Muslim world. And in fact, what, what drew me in first instance to these three people, and my choices for the book were sort of arbitrary, I sort of engaged with thinkers that attracted me. I came across and I thought, they're interesting. And in, in all three cases, it was in first instance <coughs> their work on, well, as public intellectuals. I think that's, that's the right way to describe them. And, and their political engagement. And I believe also that what has transpired then over the past year in, say, the Arabic-speaking parts of the Muslim world has brought that political dimension back into focus and, and also sort of strengthened my conviction that uh, I actually picked interesting exponents of contemporary Muslim thinking. Now, the reasons that this trio, Akun Hanafi and Majid, are not so very well known in the, in the English-speaking world is thing, I think is because they have mainly published in uh, French, Arabic, and Indonesian. They've done the odd piece in English. Some of their books have been translated, but they are not that well known in, I think, UK, United States. Uh, another thing I would have to explain is why bringing in Indonesia? Well, apart from the fact that it is the largest Muslim nation state uh, in the world, uh, because there's this tendency eh, uh, to, to conflate the Muslim world a bit with the Middle East, and, and maybe even in particular the Arab world. Now, of course, historically, that's where Islam started. It cannot be disputed. Uh, but presently, there are many more Muslims east of Hormuz than in the Middle East. And if you make a top 10 of Muslim countries in the world, then the biggest Arabic-speaking country, Egypt, is at like 5th or 6th place, I think. And moreover, in this age of uh, communication and globalization, I think it's all the more important to, to really take a, a trans-regional uh, view of the Muslim world. But probably of more immediate relevance to uh, the discussion of today is also that Hanafi and Arkoon have large audiences in Indonesia. 
and their ideas even seem to have found a more welcoming reception uh, among Indonesian Muslims than they have had in their own home countries. A second reason is that I believe developments in Indonesia itself has also something to tell to us about what we could expect or what might become possible in the future in the Middle East. In that regard, some of the groundwork has been already done for me here a few weeks ago when John Seidel uh, talked about parallels and contrasts between Indonesia and Egypt. Um, I think Indonesia provides also a, a very important additional example alongside the country that is now constantly cited as uh, the new way to move the Muslim forward politically, Turkey. Detractors have always suggested uh, that to in and invoke what they call the, 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 the Turkish exceptionalism thesis, that the, project, uh, the, the political developments in Turkey are only possible thanks to the unique historical trajectory set in motion in Turkey in the 1920s with the foundation of the Republic and the abolition of the Caliphate. However, I think that there are developments, and if you can point at these developments, in a country as remote from, from Turkey, both geographically and culturally, but which have shown some remarkable parallels. And I think I will say a few things about that later on in my talk. I'll, I'll leave it at that here. But that is one of the reasons for me to, to bring up Indonesia. Now, what is it exactly that makes people like Arkun and Hanafi and Majid <coughs> interesting for us? In the course of the last decade, we have seen dramatic events involving Muslims from across the world which have put Islam under increased scrutiny. And these are related to very complex political issues and also acute security concerns which rightly have become the focus for experts in those fields. And obviously these events did also not come out of the blue. And specialists in political Islam have already signaled an Islamic resurgence since the late 70s or early 80s. Although, if you talk about resurgence, you easily could create the impression that that, that religion, Islam in this case, uh, was somehow absent from public life, which is clearly not the case. Uh, but that term resurgence has a thought, uh, sort of caught on, although I would argue that it is actually more accurate to talk about uh, a greater salience, visibility of religion in the public sphere across the Muslim world. Now speaking of salience of visibility also makes it a bit easier to draw attention to those aspects of Muslim engagement with uh, Islam as a religious tradition which have so far I think remained unamplified in the discussion. Until today the focus has indeed been limited to the political in a narrow sense and often even further confined to yeah, rather constrictive views of, of Islamism in its more extreme <coughs> forms. Much less attention has been paid to parallel developments of more moderate, and I would even call them liberal or progressive, alternative Islamic discourses. And these may be often very intellectual, in quotation marks, but they are, I think, nonetheless relevant to um, the political process, although it may be uh, less directly or in ways that are not immediately obvious. Uh, what it does is that it creates a much broader spectrum of ideas concerning the place of religion in the Muslim world. 
course, in the final decades of the 20th century, um, there we have also seen the emergence of a, of a new Muslim intelligentsia who are exploring very different and creative ways of engaging with Islam. Now, this type of intellectuals, uh, they conceive of Islam as, as a civilization uh, rather than just religion in, in a conventional sense of, of the word. They do not limit themselves to addressing only theological questions or engaging with doctrinal uh, issues. Because of their engagement with this, this wider Islamic heritage, the Arabic word for heritage is uh, Turath, these, uh, this type of intellectuals are referred to as heritage thinkers, or Turathiyun. And the ideas emanating from these discourses also appear to provide a possible alternative to both, say, the hard secularism represented by, well, either outright authoritarian regimes or maybe more benign manifestations, or the advocacy of an Islamic state on the opposite side of the political spectrum. And this alternative, where you sort of see a collapse of the worldly and the religious, or the binary of secularism versus Islamism, is often referred to as, uh, as the third way. And it appears to me that this third way resonates also with the ambitions and expectations of those that are involved in the, the Arab uprisings of 2011. Although, I'll be one of the first to admit that one year down the road, uh, many of those proposing a different political order have failed to articulate that coherently, let alone translate it into concrete political agendas. On the other hand, that very fuzziness is, is actually reflective of the very um, plurality of, of ideas and voices uh, in the Muslim world, which are not sufficiently acknowledged, I think. Even among experts, they also often tend to subscribe to the same kind of essentialist and reductionist understandings of Islam as, as, as the general public. And it also appears that Islamists themselves are waking up to the attraction these alternatives might hold. As I will show later on when I talk about Indonesia and Turkey, they have already been experimenting with this in the political arena. And I believe that also the leader of the Tunisian Anahda movement has has employed that term that there is a third way himself. I'm also not claiming that the three uh, thinkers I'll be talking about and, and, and feature in my book are sort of fully representative of, of, of everything that's, that's going on in the Muslim world of today. In fact, they're actually quite controversial. But I think they are emblematic for uh, the original thinking which I insist is present in intellectual circles in the Muslim world. Now, for the sake of time, I, I propose to concentrate on Hassan Hanafi and Nukhoris Majid because it, it's easier to uh, relate their intellectual work to the political realm than that of Mohammed Akhkul, whose preoccupations have always been more scholarly. Also, he opted for a career in France, stayed there, never went back to Algeria, while Hanafi and Majid, after they finished their uh, advanced uh, postgraduate studies, they, they did go back to their home countries and they became an active part in, uh, they took active part in both intellectual and political debates. And again, I'm happy to talk about Arkun later on if we have time for that. We prepared extra slides to show you. Um, why these two? Well, 
me show you two statements. One of Nugolus Majid, which he made in 1970, when he launched the slogan, Islam yes, Islamic party no. Well, that created a bit of a, of a stir. Talk about that in a minute. And Hassan Hanafi got quite some flag much later on, when in a speech at the opening of the new library in Alexandria, he said he compared the Quran to a supermarket. Some people consider them an apostate. Other people in Al-Azhar thought that he should seek uh, psychiatric help because of the words of a raving madman. Uh, but I think they're sort of interesting. What do these guys mean by that? And also their biographies, I think, are sort of not exactly uh, conventional. Hassan Hanafi uh, comes from a family of musicians. And he himself also combined for a while his philosophical studies with a training as a, as a professional uh, violinist. But he was also a member of the Muslim Brotherhood in the early 50s. Then in 56, he obtained a scholarship to go and study at the Sorbonne. And in fact, he boarded the last ship that was sailing for France after the outbreak of the, of the Suez Crisis. And spelled also 10 years of hardship because he, he never got his scholarship money once he was in Paris. Now, after his uh, return in Egypt, he became one of the country's leading philosophers, and, and, and an academic philosopher. He, he, he taught, you know, sort of academic philosophy at a university, but he was regularly at odds, uh, both with the government and later also increasingly with the Islamist bloc, and at such instances it was often wiser for him to uh, go and spend a few years abroad. That's why he held a number of guest professorships in, in a number of countries when either the principal of the university said, maybe, maybe you should leave for a little while until things have calmed down a bit here. Now, I think there are three key moments in Hanafi's time in Paris, which I think are some of the formative period in, in in his intellectual maturing. Initially, uh, Hanafi was still very much under the influence of Saidkut. But he very quickly traded him in for a very different kind of Islamist reformist. Muhammad Iqbal, poet from British India who is sort of regarded as the spiritual father of Pakistan. Now, it was not Iqbal's poetry that interested Hanafi so much, but um, the philosophical lectures which uh, Iqbal had given and which were published under the title Reconstruction of Religious Thought in Islam. And that inspired Hanafi to try and develop a, what he called a comprehensive Islamic method of philosophical thinking which would then lead in first instance to liberation of the mind and then to the eventually, very optimistic, uh, political emancipation of the Muslim world. And that is also why in the book I have sort of presented the thought of Hanafi under this, this aspect of reconstructing Islam. Hanafi saw himself as finishing Iqbal's uh, work in reforming Islam and making it ready for the late 20th century. He saw it as a sort of the third phase 
of Islamic reformism which had started in the 19th century with Al-Avrani's diagnosis of eh, what was wrong with the Muslim world, they were sick, and, and then you get a sort of uh, Muhammad Abdu and Rashid Ridda coming up with mobilization ideas and uh, treatments for that disease. Iqbal, in the view of, of, of Hanafi, pointed actually towards a real reconstruction of religious thinking. <coughs> now, wait for a moment with that. Uh, aside from this switch from Kutub to Iqbal, the next important moment in Hanafi's intellectual maturing was when he was in France, uh, actually the encounter with German philosophy particularly the Romantic philosophers of the early 19th century, but especially the phenomenology of Husserl. Uh, that inspired him to take a sort of a phenomenological view of Islamic thinking. And he singled out um, a traditional Islamic discipline which sort of deals with the theory and method of Islamic law, Usul al-Fiqh, as the most advanced discipline within traditional Islamic learning. And he thought he could transform that from a, a juridical specialism into a generic philosophical method. And that became actually the topic of his PhD thesis. It's really very creative what he tries to do there. Um, and then finally, there was an introduction to Christian theology. As I showed you earlier, he worked with Ricoeur, but he also uh, became very much interested in Catholic modernism, which had been developed in France by uh, Alfred Loisy and um, Jean Guitton who actually got Hanafi that invitation to attend uh, Vatican Council II in Rome. He was the only Muslim observer present then, even met Pope and, and talked to cardinals. Um, but it didn't stop there. After Vatican II, he also became very interested in Latin American liberation theology. And in both instances, it is not a concern with, say, Christian doctrinal positions or orthodoxy or things like that. He was attracted by, number one, the methodologies applied in Catholic modernism and the revolutionary elan which you would find in Latin American liberation theology. And these two aspects are also reflected in Hanafi's own um, philosophical output. He wrote three very thick volumes for his uh, Doctorat d'État. There's no 100,000 word limit in, in the Sorbonne to a PhD thesis he produced three 700-page tomes in which he laid out this new uh, philosophical method. And it actually forms the foundation for what became his, his life's work, the Heritage and Renewal Project, Started that in 1980, still not finished. That is conceived actually as a double critique. And that's where both the philosophical and the theological grounding he received in the Sorbonne uh, become important. It's a double critique of both the Islamic and the Western read Christian civilization. And the critique functions as a preparation for a new way of thinking that will help in first instance the Egyptians and the Arab world to fulfill its political emancipation, but which is also envisaged to expand very ambitiously to the rest of the Muslim world and eventually the whole third world. As a, we are in the 60s here where these ideas germinated and, and, and in the 70s and 80s, there's still sort of the remnants of this tiers mondism, this third world is discord, is, is still alive at the time. Now, whereas heritage and renewal provides the sort of the philosophical underpinnings, there is also a brief treatise he wrote, Al-Yasar al-Islami, 
which can be considered a sort of the ideological manifesto, means the, the Islamic left or leftist Islam, uh, which is sort of found the, then the political implementation of that grand project. Al-Yusar uh, al-Islami was originally conceived as a journal, uh, but only one issue was published, and that's where the manifesto uh, appeared. As I said, heritage and renewal is still not finished, and already in 1991, uh, Hanafi actually realized he had bitten off more than he could chew, because it, this is a solo project, and it's way too ambitious for one individual. Uh, but at the time, he thought it became more and more important to emphasize also that second dimension, which would sort of, you know, the need for a much more assertive um, Muslim attitude towards the West's political and intellectual domination. And for that purpose, he wrote what he called the Introduction to Occidentalism, 1991, in which he proposes that, you know, Western civilizations are very nice, etc., but it should sort of be relegated and confined to its own proper uh, proportions. But at the same time, in the book, he also makes it very clear that both the Islamic world and the West are part of one and the same Judeo-Christian Islamic narrative. Now, Hanafi stresses that even the current antagonism between the, the two poles, Islamic world and the West, that is just another instance of yet basically a, con a continuous encounter which features also earlier intellectual exchanges. He points at the absorption of ancient Greek learning in 8th century Baghdad, and then a sort of the return of that uh, Greek Hellenist legacy to Europe via 12th century uh, Spain, in which figures like Ibn Rushd, Averas, uh, played such a crucial role. And it is that civilizational hybridity uh, also ref is reflected, I think, in, in the following statement, which uh, I I said, on purpose, I didn't talk to these people, also for the reason that the Indonesian had died the month I started my research, and I thought, what am I going to do now? I can talk to two of them, but the third one is gone. And I decided maybe I shouldn't. So that, you know, they've written so much, if the answers aren't there, uh, what's the point? I'm not writing a biography, and they're not going to reveal some juicy details that nobody has ever heard. So I avoided the sort of going for interviews and, and trying to figure out if they have any skeletons in the cupboard or what, what have you. But I once sent an email to Hanafi, said, how do you see yourself? And he came back with this answer, and it was, it was just perfect, you know, it sort of re recaptures everything, his whole trajectory. I'm a phenomenologist, maybe, yeah, or am I still the old Muslim brother? Or he has also an interest in Sufism. You know, he has written extensively on Ibn al-Arabi. So, you know, he has a multi-layered identity. I think that is also a feature you really see in these, these new um, Muslim intellectuals. Let me now move to Indonesia. Uh, geographically, we are indeed at the eastern periphery, but I would argue that at the same time, one of the it is one of the countries to watch, to get an idea of what might become possible elsewhere in the Muslim world too. Uh, one of the key figures who has been instrumental in uh, shaping the political intellectual climate there and who was uh, conducive to uh, coming up with a newly defined role for religion in the public sphere was Nuholis Majid. He was a former student leader 
and uh, compared to Hassan Hanafi, he really wielded political influence in these younger years. He was later on also instrumental in negotiating the resignation of uh, President Suharto, 1998. So he, he definitely is a high-profile political intellectual. It's not just confined to some of the academic or the intellectual uh, world. He was brought up in a traditional family of Muslims, but his father supported a modernist Islamic party in Indonesia called Mashumi. And he had also a dual education. He went to a state secular school, but he also attended a traditional Islamic school. They call him Pesantrens or Pondoks in Indonesia. He graduated from one of the more progressive ones, I should point out. And that qualified him to go even to a state university, but he didn't do that. He went to one of the Islamic state institutes, and instead of studying what people all expected, you know, maybe fiqh or Islamic theology, he picked uh, Arabic and Islamic cultural studies instead. And then he becomes the chairman of the largest uh, a Muslim student association. And it's in that capacity he made that statement I showed you earlier. Islam, yes, Islamic party, no. And he had been a sort of the anointed uh, new leader of the Mashumi Islamic party. But that, of course, was quickly finished with a statement like that. Because he presented a much more progressive future trajectory which did not focus any longer on establishing an Islamic State and not even the introduction of what the Muslims also wanted, a stipulation in the Indonesian constitution that Muslims should abide by Islamic law. Instead, he came up with these two concepts. He said people should think more carefully. He said that there is no reason to say why Islam and modernity are somehow not compatible. He insisted that Islam acknowledged and embraced both rational thinking and secularization. And they have to be very careful. He means secularization, not secularism. A lot of his opponents said that is just sophistry. But he said, no, actually, you don't really get it. And for these views, he drew in particular on uh, the writings in the 1960s about the secularization thesis by people like Harvey Cox, uh, but more so even uh, Robert Bella and Peter Berger sociologists of religion. I'll not go into the finer points of Majid's argumentation, but what it boils down to is that uh, an individual pious Muslim's personal relation with God is governed, he said, with an entirely different type of knowledge than the one that applies to his disworldly existence. So as social and political beings, he says, Muslims should avail of modern reason and also be comfortable with secularity. And to his detractors, Majid even retorted that it is actually almost demeaning to Islam as a religion to have it defiled by politics. Because that is only meant to manage interhuman relations and should therefore be relegated, rightly, to the realm of the secular. In the 70s, Majid left Indonesia for postgraduate studies in the States under Pakistani scholar Fazlur Rahman. And it's there that he actually became increasingly appreciative of the richness of the Islamic tradition. That's where he really becomes this new Muslim intellectual who really straddles these two civilizational heritages. He wrote, for example, a thesis on Ibn Taymiyyah, and in particular Ibn Taymiyyah's challenges of both Al-Ghazali and the philosophers. Now, in 1984, we are in the 80s, and I think the 80s are the critical juncture. Throughout the Muslim world, it then appears uh, that overtly Islamic political agendas are making a comeback. But I maintain that is only half the story. 
And in Indonesia and Turkey, we see then already uh, a very different negotiation of a new role for Islam in public life. I call it public life, not politics, because that is what it's all about. In Indonesia, that was called the re-actualization, re-actualization in Bahasa Indonesia, which was conceived by, by this man. It's the brainchild of the then Minister of Religious Affairs, Munawar Shadzali. The idea is that there, there is space in public life, a more prominent role for Islam, in return for the acknowledgement what is a sort of the, 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 the principle of Indonesia's statehood and its constitution, the Pancasila, the five principles. The first one of which is all Indonesians, every Indonesian has to believe in one God. But it's not specified, it's not called Allah or God or this. You have to believe in a supreme being and there is no references being made uh, to, to Islam or any of the other recognized religions on purpose. So it is in this climate, I would say, that we get a sort of a new civilizational understanding of Islam. And it was able to thrive there. I would call it a sort of Turath Indonesian style. And locally it's often referred to as cultural Islam, Islam cultural, civil Islam, even cosmopolitan Islam. Yeah? And it is very much a thing for a growing middle class of increasingly well-educated and also prosperous uh, urban Muslims in the Indonesian cities. And it's also in these circles that these ideas of Hassan Hanafi and Mohammed Arkun find resonance and are taking root. Now, Nohollis Majid, upon his return, he sort of becomes part of that and he starts to cater to this uh, newly emerging and burgeoning constitution through sort of a, a think tank, the Paramadina Foundation, they do workshops on Islam and uh, sometimes of a bit like these self-help type of, you know, Deepak Chopra Islam style uh, gatherings, usually five-star hotels with a nice buffet thrown in. Um, he has also established a private university, Paramadina University. Uh, and I have heard rumors, unsubstantiated so far, that the current rector uh, Anis Baswidan is uh, sort of tapped now as a potential presidential candidate in 2014. Now the government in these circumstances also felt bound to respond and they, they established what they call the Association of Muslim Intellectuals. This was under the patronage of the president, General Suharto, and run by his protege, the minister of uh, of technology Habibi and his later successor. That whole process, what you see take place under the reactualization agenda, in Indonesia they call it panhijawan. It means greening. Greening refers to the symbolic color of Islam. Indonesian society definitely became more Islamic and it reached even, well, the apex of society when Pak Harto becomes uh, Haji Muhammad Harto after he made the Hajj in 1991. So, Although Indonesia is now clearly exhibiting, uh, you know, a, a somewhat pious image uh, and, a, and a wish to uh, affirm and, and assert its, its Muslim identity, for intellectuals like uh, Majid, it still is uh, very much not a thing about turning Indonesia 
into an Islamic state. That says, you know, not an Islamic state. The title of a, of a discussion he had with Mohammed Roum, another politician. And here I think we see the parallel with Turkey, because the soft secularism of Panchasila uh, is also reflected in the, the, the maybe the, the more drastic Turkish Kemalist constitution of the Turkish Republic. But at the same time, I also believe that uh, the Turkish Islamic synthesis, which starts to take shape in exactly the same time frame as uh, the reactualization agenda, developed uh, under a general who had committed the last coup in 1980, and a technocrat, Turgut Özal, who first served as prime minister and later as uh, president himself until his untimely death in 1993. Uh, I think it's very similar to the Indonesian reactualization agenda. And it also sees in Turkey the emergence of its own brand of new Muslim intellectuals engaging with the wider uh, civilizational heritage of Islam. However, I think it would be wrong at the same time to present too rosy a picture of this. And um, there are definitely also, there's another side of the coin that holds equally important lessons, I think, for what might be in store for a post-Arab Spring uh, Middle East. Because the 1990s are also a time of polarization. Opening up the field also means that other voices can come in and maybe the ones you do not really like. We have seen that in Egypt we had some shocking examples. The assassination of Farak Fouda, a man who also sort of drove his agenda that, you know, the Islamic past is not just a golden age where everything was Yankee Doodle attempt on Nagib Mahfouz, Nobel Prize winner, because uh, the allegorical depictions he gave of religions in one of his novels was considered offensive. And the forced exile of Nasser Hamad Abu Zayd, student of Hassan Hanafi, whose uh, plans for uh, a new radical sort of semiotic analysis of the Quran was considered unacceptable. And similar things happened in Indonesia post-1998. You get Laskar Jihad, you get the, 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 front, the Islamic Defense Front, and you know these are people who are not uh, uh, refraining from violent action, and not just against uh, uh, Christians and other minorities, but also against fellow Muslims. They disagree with. But I think, in spite of such tribulations, uh, the beginning of the new millennium sees a counter uh, current emerging as well, exploring new possibilities. And again, Turkey and Indonesia are at the forefront. You have the postmodernist coup in Turkey, which then leads to the post-Islamist agenda of the AK party, eh, where they say that you can concentrate on democratic reforms and economic development instead of driving an Islamist agenda that only looks at the outward manifestations of piety or being Muslim. And in Indonesia, the leader of the large traditional Muslim organization even became the first democratically elected president. Now, his presidency was not exactly a success, but that was just because Abdurrahman Wahid was administratively a disaster. But the political system allowed for a religious figure, in quotation marks, to be elected to the highest office in the land. Yeah? But perhaps more important is uh, and exercising a more sustained influence are the continuing efforts of young intellectuals to 
pursue a moderate course that advocates the principles of religious tolerance, pluralism, secularism, and liberalism. And there are two manifestations of that. Uh, there is an Islam, a, a liberal Islam network. These are the two uh, founders. They emerged in 2001, exactly in response to actions by movements like Laskar Jihad and FPE, who you know turned to violence. Um, very controversial. These are sort of you know things you find on the web of detractors. Where do they get the money from? Those that whole idea of them, you know, it's not nice. And Jill Nereka, that means even. Uh, uh, has to be condemned to, to hell in, in the hereafter. Um, a less politicized and, and more intellectual trend is what is called Islamic post-traditionalism. These are sort of the two poster boys of that, Ahmed Basso and uh, an intellectual called Rumadi. Uh, they really share a continuing interest in these controversial thinkers I mentioned earlier. Not just Hassan Hanafi and Arkun, but also, increasingly, Mohammed Abed al-Jabri, philosopher from Morocco, uh, Nasser Hamad Abu Zaid, I mentioned him earlier, but also the Sudanese uh, uh, legal scholar and human rights theorist, Abdullahi Anahi. Here you see him at a, at a conference at an Islamic university. Now, although the Arab world is still really in a state of flux now, and it is far from clear what's going to happen over the next few years, it appears to me now that that future most likely will also be post-Islamist or maybe post-traditionalist and, and very much informed also alongside the other uh, trends, you see, by the ideas of, of, of progressive intellectuals whose ideas appear to resonate with an increasingly um, well-educated and articulate young middle class of Muslims around the world. And maybe I should leave it at that. Thank you. Thank you very much for a fascinating exploration of the ideas in your book. We have about 45 minutes for questions. Uh, if you want to ask a question, could you please give your name and affiliation? And uh, I'd encourage you to keep the questions short so we can get as many in as we can. So who would like to start off? Please. Yes. Uh, thank you for a very interesting lecture. I'm familiar with the ideas of Hassan Hadi. Um, Hassan Hadi is, is uh, two things I want to say about him. First, Hassan Hadi is very liberating, especially when you read him in Arabic. He talks about grand ideas. Mm -hmm. He introduces himself as a, almost as a savior to the, to the Islamic nation. He talks about Tawhid, about important subjects. Mm -hmm. uh, but the uh, problem is that, very much like Akun, his discourse is very intellectual. He, managed, he tried, you, you explained that he tried to establish a political platform, mm -hmm. but that, that was not a very su you know, successful uh, so how could these intellectuals really translate their, uh, their, their sophisticated intellectual uh, discourse into a, a mobilization movement? Especially Hanafi talks about mobilizing the masses and mm -hmm. that, as you said, he was influenced by socialist liberation theology. Yeah. Yeah. The second thing is how, how would you distinguish them from the 
reforms of the, 20, of the early 20th century, late 19th century, like Jamaluddin Afghani and Muhammad Abdi. Those had, met, had very few uh, enemies among the Islamists because their Islamic reference was much more clearer than the Hassan Hanafi and Akun, especially Akun. Is, 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 many people you know, consider him a very staunch secretary. He died now, I think, but... Yes. Yeah. So these are my two comments and questions. Oh, I think they're, they're very acute comments. And uh, in, yeah, Hassan Hanafi is not exactly uh, hindered by a false sense of modesty. In, in, in that sense, that these are very grand ideas. And what, what weakened him also is that it became a solo exercise. So his later writings, to my mind, I'm, I'm, I mean, I find them interesting, but it doesn't mean I'm uncritical. And the case of Hanafi, uh, I think the later work, which, and you know, he writes books, five, six, seven volumes on his own, it becomes a bit encyclopedic and superficial. But very few people have bothered to read those French dissertations. And, uh, uh, you know, the first volume of Turas al-Tajdid, Heritage and Renewal, is maybe 120 pages. And it's actually, if you have read the French, uh, the, the, the French expose of where Usul al-Fiqh, Foundations of Jurisprudence, is his first test case, is, is basically condensed. The problem is when he starts to look at other disciplines like, you know, Kalam, theology and Sufism, because of the sheer volume he thinks he has to cover on his own, uh, it becomes indeed superficial. That it is indeed rather brainy stuff, and that for sure applies maybe even to the power, to uh, Mohammed Akhun, which is for a lot of people even, even more obscure and obtuse. Uh, the one thing I like about Arkun is that he basically was somebody who set new agendas. He did very, I will not say little research on somebody who basically talked about projects that should be addressed and he was the first one to admit that it should be teamwork of, you know, multidisciplinary teamworks of, of and preferably Muslims and people from the Western Academy working together. So in that sense he is more modest and it is more a tentative agenda telling younger generations to get on with it. This is stuff that has not been done. That brings me also to um, the other comment you make. What, what's the difference with these earlier reformists or modernists? It's the critical attitude. Uh, and Arkun uses that term, the unthought, or the unthinkable in Islam. There are discourses that have been swept under the carpet. Shia thought certain strands of Sufi, the things that were considered heretical. And in the case of Arkun also, th this man is a Kabili Berber, so he comes from an oral culture. He says the whole oral heritage, because of Islam's sort of focus on the great, in quotation marks, tradition, scriptural, text, ulama, and, and all the rest of it, there is a sort of a, yeah, what is often dismissed as folk Islam or popular Islam, which he says is also part of the heritage. So, and, and the criticism of earlier generations is, is that, yes, the earlier Muslims can provide an interesting example, but, but if you look at a golden age, whether that would be the Abbasid Caliphate or even the Salaf, you know, they are held up as, as a sort of, you know, pristine, unblemished benchmark for the Muslims. Well, if you look at it, of the four righteous Caliphs, only one died in bed. The other three were murdered. 
it wasn't all that pretty. So they say it is very important to remain critical even of the heritage we sort of take the inspiration from. And that is also what you see these Indonesian uh, post-traditionalists do, inspired by Al Jabri, who is, you know, he also died, by the way, last year. So, and, and I don't see directly in the Arab world a lot of immediate successes, which probably has more to do with the repressive climate we have had, not just politically, but also at universities. I can point at people in Indonesia, second, third, fourth generation, some of these guys are born in the 1970s and writing books already, I'm much more troubled finding comparable people in the Arab world at present. But it looks like with what is going on now that that might change. And, you know, what it could look like is, well, things you see in Turkey and Indonesia having had a chance already in the past 20 or 30 years. That, that is a sort of the underlying argument. Please. Yeah. Um, thank you. Um, I was just wondering, uh, to what extent do you think that the ideas that you are talking about in this um, will flourish or have influence in modern Egyptian politics at the moment, especially given the sort of rise of the Islamic mm -hmm. um, Like what I said, it will be not immediately obvious, but it's sort of the, the kind of vague ideas that were circulating last year among the people, you know, on Tahrir Square, uh, resonate with... These are not... I mean, Hassan Hanafi can have the ambition with his Islamic leftist uh, agenda, but they they are not agendas for the foundation blueprints for alternative Muslim movements. They present alternatives that it is not Mubarak versus Muslim Brotherhood only. That they win the elections at this instance is not surprising. The, the, the only other movement with organizational elan and flair is the Muslim Brotherhood. They've had 90 years of experience. Underground reinventing themselves in the 70s and 80s, it's not strange at all. Plus, the protest vote, and maybe the challenge of the Muslim Brotherhood, and even Anur at present, you know, well, you guys say Islam is the solution. Uh, I get the impression that part of the electorate is even willing to take a risk. And they've been warned, don't vote for the Muslim Brotherhood, will be one man or one woman, one vote, one time. But it's basically calling them out. Well, show us. Run the country. Yeah? It's going to be messy. As I said, Indonesia wasn't a pretty picture either in 1998. There was fragmentation, Christians against Muslims, transmigrant Javanese against Dayaks on Borneo. There was a breakdown of order. What, what it shows is that there are alternatives between Mubarak's kleptocracy or the Muslim Brotherhood that in first instance they run away with, with the trophy is not surprising. They're the only one who's sort of ready. Yeah? But it's not the only option available for the future. Uh, but it is a sort of a, an obscure and vague picture. To These ideas are heavy. But with a growing middle class, I think that is where the key is, demographics. That middle class is going to grow. More and more people will have an education and are able to grasp the ideas of, no matter how brainy, abstract and intellectual, Hanafi, and Akun have expounded. The Indonesians could. Why not in their home countries? My name, my name is Hansa. Thank you very much for your, for your talk. And if 
think my questions will um, echo some of the um, uh, comments you made. Um, I'm interested in Muhammad Arun's work. I, when I try to read his book, Islam to Reform to Subvert, I really struggled reading it. It was intellectually daunting to me. Mm -hmm. um, can you tell us more about some of his ideas? And why did his ideas resonate well in the Indonesian society? Good question, yeah. You're telling me because... Uh, it's definitely true that he is probably the, 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 the hardest uh, Muslim intellectual um, to, to get a handle on things because he also... Uh, he's very French. You know, he, th he throws around uh, just as easily ideas from, from Derrida and Ricoeur uh, and, and the likes. Uh, as he engages sort of with you know uh, historical episodes uh, from from the Muslim heritage, which is a sort of his academic field, I think it's exactly a sort of well, I call it intellectual adventurism, which appeals sort of to the Indonesians. I think that is what what they like. They they're great synthesizers, and it's cultural. I mean. The, the Islam you find in Indonesia is very different from the Middle Eastern one. It is a much less homogeneous society. It arrived relatively late. And there was already this, this sort of Indian traditions. But don't have the wrong idea of that, that they're sort of less, lesser Muslims, like it's a thin veneer that if you scratch a Javanese, actually underneath he's a Buddhist or a Hindu. It, it has been around for three, four hundred years. Islamic scholars and even uh, you know, the intellectuals I talked about are, are basically bilingual. They're fluent <coughs> in Arabic. Both, you know, Fosha to read it and often also Ameya. There's plenty of people who have gone to Al-Azhar uh, or to Cairo uh, or, or Baghdad, like Abdurrahman Wahid. He studied in Cairo and in Baghdad. Interesting. Ulama establishment and he takes degrees in Arabic literature in Cairo and Baghdad. And they don't see a conflict in that. That, you know, you don't have to only sit in, in the halqa in in Al-Azhar and listen to the turbaned and bearded ones. It, it's a sort of that, they're comfortable with that. And I think that is why ideas of, uh, of Akun, who makes it not easier on the reader because he has this whole alternative vocabulary like the unthought and then he borrows notions like the imaginaire or deconstruction from Derrida. But the very fact that he is willing to do that I mean, that's what I focused on in the book. I was mainly on new ways of doing Islamic studies. Taking it not just beyond the philological, historical orientation of, uh, sort of the benign Orientalism and the text-critical work, which he appreciates. Akun says, without that, I wouldn't even have the building blocks to do my own work. Or area specialists who tend to focus on the political. It is very abstract, but... Who would have thought that you can use, you know, the semiotics of uh, Jamslav or, or these kind of Eastern, Euro the Eastern European literary critical school to analyze the Quran? Abu Zaid thought that was possible as well. And, and for some Muslims, that was bringing in the devil's work. But as a methodology, uh, they thought it offered a new way of taking a fresh look at the Quran as a text. They were not talking about the do doctrinal aspects. They were not even moving in that area. It was understanding the text that they were interested in. But it is often a methodological toolbox 
uh, not just Muslims are often unfamiliar with, run of the mill, even academics in the West might raise eyebrows. But it's worth trying. Yes, I have a question on, uh, on the use of the term cosmopolitanism in your uh, associated with this way of thinking. Mm -hmm. there, um, I mean, obviously, the idea of cosmopolitanism is as strong uh, as its roots in the Enlightenment and the priority of reason and the Kantian moral agent and so on. That is, in, my, in the way I see it, is profoundly uh, inimical to the idea of religion in most of the cases, somehow. Uh, so the idea of associating these, these thinkers with cosmopolitanism somehow it seems to me uh, not entirely convincing, as taking into account that I don't know them as much as you do, of course, so you probably can explain this. First, and on the other hand, yeah. these thinkers somehow it reminds me more uh, communitarian political theory, rather communitarian political yeah. theory rather than cosmopolitan political theory. And especially when you mentioned <coughs> the fact that Hanafi was a student of Paul Ricoeur, for example, who was uh, definitely uh, one of the thinkers of communitarianism mm -hmm. and so on. Uh, it gives me, I wonder whether this kind of conversation in, East, uh, in Islamic culture is more the same kind of conversation that uh, it was in the West about communitarians and cosmopolitans, uh, rather than being just uh, yeah. identified as cosmopolitans as such. Yeah. Now, uh, cosmopolitanism, I've put it in the title as a provocation to begin with, but I, I explain also in one of the chapters how I understand cosmopolitanism. The one that is indeed most current in the West is that association with sort of the Kantian Enlightenment type of cosmopolitanism. But that's not all there is to it. This taps very much into that discussion that is sort of has re-emerged in well, yeah, the, the last 10 years, I think. Partly here at LSE. Think more along Ulrich Beck's lines, the cosmopolitan vision, second modernity. And then you get, maybe then you can also link it up even with that communitarian idea. It is not purely the Enlightenment strand. It's also not uh, cosmopolitan like in, you know, the, the magazine. It, it's not the consumer cosmopolitanism of well-heeled people staying in the five-star hotels in the world. It, it's more this ability to be able to synthesize ideas from different cultures. And those who are a sort of open to that, you could say, that, that's how they use it also in the Indonesian context. They are cosmopolitan in attitude. Uh, and those who disagree with that find these same people who self-identify as cosmopolitan heretical. Yeah. The communitarian idea, well, I think there is certain, for sure, an Indonesian reservations uh, in that because of the very fact that it is a plural society, even beyond communitarianism in, in, in the sense of Muslims, uh, Christian Indonesian, the Chinese community, it might be a recipe of disaster. It is basically the inclusiveness of this notion of Panchasila and that, that is not necessarily an anathema to being a Muslim. So in that sense, you could be sort of a qualified Muslim communitarian. Hi, I'm, I'm Daniel from the Middle East. Um, I'm not an expert in this field at all, but I'm curious. Um, you were talking about how Arkun and, and Hanafi are very heady. I find them very heady. Um, and how you know, with emerging middle classes, more and more people may understand. I'm wondering whether class 
was the class dynamic being set up here, and whether in the future you might see some struggles between, say, you know, middle class Muslims who are really open to the kind of mm -hmm. policy thinking, and then I'm just thinking my dad. My dad's a Muslim, and he's he's pretty well educated, but I don't think he would, you know, really get this at all. Um, and I'm just wondering, you know, what kind of yeah. struggles we might see. I, I, I hesitate because it, it, you get very quickly maybe in a sort of a Marxian uh, frame of mind. I mean, the fact that you say, my, I'm, not, I'm not sure if my dad gets this. It might be more a generational type of thing. And yeah, middle class, yeah, it's almost unavoidable to talk about classes, but there is a middle class growing in the Muslim. It's demographic <coughs> the world over. That's why we have globalization. It's driven by that percentage-wise, middle classes are growing. Not just in the Muslim world. I mean, it's that book, uh, what is it, The Forces of Fortune by Vali Nasser, which uh, it's anecdotal, but definitely there's something going on here. And, you know, and it has a wider reach. India and China, you know, they have middle classes that are already bigger than the whole population of the United States. They, they sort of tend to get critical mass. And you sort of create a bigger audience. Not everybody, it's not lock, stock and barrel that that whole middle class thinks, yay, Hanafi, Akun. Not at all. But there is, say, a bigger potential constituency than there was 30, 40 years ago. I'm Chris Kramer here at LSE. Um, I mean, I think sort of for my or my sort of focus of research is on Central Asia, and mm -hmm. there are very often find arguments coming in on sort of that explains Ummah and Pan Arabism in a way that um, sort of favors a very extreme opinion in anything. Um, and actually, quite a lot of people in, in for example, Afghanistan or Tajikistan, Turkmenistan are. So pulling a reference to, to, to the more orthodox or conservative Catholic um, debate that you had in medieval periods in Europe mm -hmm. that was used to unify across a very sort of loosely defined identity politics. Um, so religion became something that was transnational, and yeah. but it was very extreme and it was very sort of what we would now label fundamentalist. Right. Um, I think. I mean, do you think there is a, there's a sort of this more moderate or this more sort of intellectual um, debate that these philosophers or more philosophers rather than sort of religious leaders or political yeah. leaders are pushing forwards is able to stem against this? Because right now it seems like anything sort of pan-Arabism under Nasser was was dead. Now it's mm -hmm. extremism that is that is sort of seen as you know we're under attack and attack brings bring mm -hmm. in, uh, in identity. A lot more sort of reason or rationality based on this. Mm -hmm. That's a disadvantage, no? Yes, I, I cannot comment on on developments in Central Asia. I'm I'm blatantly ignorant. But um, I mean, even the example I gave from Indonesia, you have a sort of these these less compromising people who drive. It's all Muslims. It's us Muslims against the rest. You know, the the, the clash of civilizations thesis. It's not just driven by neocons in America. There's people <laughs> unwittingly, almost maybe in the Muslim world, affirming it by being the mirror image. Yeah, in the 1990s. You yeah, you said it's definitely there. Oh, and it hasn't disappeared. I mean, the Ahmadiyya <coughs> movement is still under attack in 
Indonesia. They're being persecuted by Laskar Jihad and, and FPI. What is interesting is that a guy like um, Rumadi, who is associated with NU, he works in the Wahed Institute, goes on TV and defends them. He said, I'm doctrinally 100% opposed to what the Ahmadis stand for. But I defend them 100% to say what they want to say. Yeah. And they also sort of take the consequences of that, that even, you know, less savory movements, uh, as long as they abstain from violence and things like that, are allowed to say. Now, a lot of Muslims are, of course, in pretty desperate circumstances. The people I'm talking about, the constituency, yeah, middle class, as I said, prosperous, well-educated. They're pretty comfortable. And I'll admit there is a sort of a, yeah, this is a bit of a luxury, if you are, uh, as opposed to... This, Certainly, I mean, Afghanistan, I mean, barely anybody has an opportunity at the moment to go to university there. So, no, just uh, for example, with the, the yeah. you know, what do you find? I mean, Iran has a similar mm -hmm. story between 2006 and so 2009. Yeah. Um, anything that was a bit more towards you know, the word rationality or liberalism was automatically associated with. Yeah, and, and enemy, at the same time, enemy yeah. identity was constructed yes. around these terms, and I think this is sort of. You know, and yet, if you look at Iran, if you think outside of the regime, uh, it is one of the other countries I think where interesting things are happening. It's not just uh, the Maghreb, people from Algeria, Morocco, Indonesia, Turkey, Iran. If you think outside of the the establishment of the republic, I mean. They have produced people like Soros, Kadivar, Shabistari. The, the problem is, of course, that with political polarization, it was also safer for these people to go to the States and teach there. But there was, in spite of the fact that they have had like 30 years of you know, rule by Ayatollahs, the intellectual realm remained fertile. And it was a sort of a, a roller coaster ride of clampdowns and things being allowed. But th they haven't. I think a very inquisitive uh, intellectual community, which doesn't have it easy, definitely. But in Indonesia, sometimes these, you know, uh, Ulil Absar Abdallah of, of the Islamic Liberal Network received a bomb letter. Yeah, it's, uh, I'm, I'm not pretending that this is unchallenged and that everybody is convinced that these are good ideas. What it does show is that Muslims have come up with alternative ideas and Oh yeah, it's, it's, it's speculation to what extent this, this has potential or will be allowed to sort of flourish. But, you know, interesting ideas are being formulated by Muslims. They are, you know, real people. That's often forget, you know, and, you know, religious scholars are sort of guilty as charged. We tend to essentialize. Islam says this, Islam says that, Islam says nothing. Muslims say things, Muslims think and do. And that is often disappearing from, even from academic study. And, you know, we want to make it easy. We like to pigeonhole. Hmm? Fundamentalist, jihadi, salafi, moderate, progressive. Uh, often, you know, the people who are personally very pious does not automatically mean they're going to vote for the Muslim Brotherhood. Sometimes they fit in more than one category. That's just hard for us observers to get a handle on things. But reality is fuzzy, I think, rather than nice and easily manageable.
That's what I mean with don't get too rosy a picture of this that everybody is in agreement or that the governments automatically embrace it. I think Iran probably suffered very much from what I said also about the Arab world that you know these repressive regimes had maybe were getting better and better at PR, generals taking off the uniform, putting on a three piece suit, and looking acceptable. Uh, but it was just as repressive. The very fact that you know people like Hanafi are sort of individuals rather than. Uh, uh, that it really becomes a community like they got a chance. In Indonesia have this, this, this strange institute they call the Islamic State Institute. In a country which actually tries to keep religion at bay from politics, they have Islamic State Institutes. <coughs> and that's where these guys are on the reading list. And it's not one unit. You know, they have 16 campuses across the country with tens of thousands of students. And, and these people are really omnivores, not only for Arkud and Hanafi and these kind of things. If you go to the bookshops on the campus, there is also Gramsci, Che Guevara, uh, and superficial stuff. Deepak Chopra is also there. They're sort of they want to read it all. And that is something you often find, uh, well, th that vibrancy I often miss in, in the Arab world. And I don't think that is self-chosen. I think its opportunities are just not created. And, and that's the political side of the story, obviously. Where I can plead innocence because I'm a scholar of religion and not a political scientist. Can I ask another question? Yeah, go ahead. I'll be interested to know why do you place uh, an international government in Lebanon? No, I've ne I know the name, but I have never. Okay, Lebanon. Uh, yeah. He's, the, he's a very interesting case because he's the brother of Hassan Lebanon. Okay. But uh, his discourse is uh, very much close to the idea of Islam is not a state, Islam is a nation and civil society. Right. Uh, he's very old now, but. Uh, He's very controversial. Right. For his, uh, yeah, but to, to me that, that sounds much more that he would be on this side of the spectrum than, than on the side of his brother, uh, let alone Syed Qutb, whose brother, by the way, was in full agreement with him and had a thriving academic career in Saudi Arabia after they had hanged his brother. Any other questions? I'm sorry, uh, where Ali Sharia would fit in in terms of 
versus, I mean, for somebody like me who's not familiar with any of these thinkers. Yeah. I have to put in one caveat there, of course, first of all, he's a Shiite. Yeah? So the heritage he looks at is different. If you look methodologically, uh, well, he's actually a contemporary of Hassan Hanafi. I, I mean, if there's one thing that would be interesting to discover, Paris was a big city, whether they ever bumped into each other, because they did a sort of yeah, similar stuff. He ran also up on French philosophy at the time. He spent the same almost critical decade in uh, from the mid 50s till the mid 60s in in France, like 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 Hanafi and uh, Arkunitz, you know, Suez Crisis, independence of uh, Algeria, all the way up to the student riots of 68. It was a time of ferment. Paris must have been a very exciting city for these people. What you see in Ali Shariati, I think, is a is a similar ability of flair to to draw on Western thought and at the same time be thoroughly. Uh, uh, Shiite in outlook, you know, and, and also not adverse to a bit of, you know, sloganism. Yeah? Everybody is Hussein, every day is Karbala. Islamic party, yes, or Islam, yes, Islamic party, no. There is a bit of, you know, provocative sloganism going on as well, of course. So temperament-wise, yeah, he would fit the bill, I think, but you have to always be very careful and, you know, I'm not really I talk about new Muslim intellectuals, but I, I sort of take three quite different people almost to make the case that, you know, you shouldn't compare apples and pears. I'm showing you the whole fruit basket. Any other questions? Do you want to ask one? Um, I just want to add to one comment, because Chariati, you, can, uh, you cannot say that he's just a um, religious uh, intellectual. He was a man that uh, at the end, I don't know, it was around 20 that he said Abu, um, Abu Zar was a socialist. Mm -hmm. So you never can say that he was just, we category him as an intellectual. He's a political intellectual. He's mm. a I wouldn't challenge that. Uh, uh, just that, that Hassan Hanafi has a sort of a, an academic philosophical side, and you know, he has written. Uh, yeah, really dense philosophical stuff, which I imagine would only be read by other academic philosophers, but there's the other stuff as well. Maybe Ali Shariati is a bit more towards, you know, making ideas palatable to political activists, but I think he was a, I mean, a pretty rigorous thinker in his own right. Re regardless of what the objectives were he had. I mean, Hassan Hanafi had wild objectives in his younger years, was very ambitious. Anyone else? Well, before we wrap up, I'd just like to say that in the next of the Middle East Center's Arab Uprising Lecture Series, we'll have Awash Durges, Professor of Middle East Studies here at the LSE, uh, speaking on the Islamist moment in the Middle East, domestic and geostrategic implications, next Monday, February 13th, 6.30 p.m. in the New Theatre which is just the opposite the old theatre on Houghton Street. I'd like to also say that the book is on sale here at the front. If you've enjoyed all the different fruits and you'd like to buy the basket, please go ahead. And uh, it's amazing to thank Dr. Kirsten for a fascinating lecture.